Osiris. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com. As sunlight struck the silvery wings outside the starboard window of Pan Am Flight 101, shooting splinters of light across the interior cabin, three of the beetles huddled at a window to size up the view. In the first-class compartment, John sat rigidly behind the others. He'd grown subdued during the last, final hour, his face closed over with doubt. That morning, the boys got a wildly enthusiastic send-off from thousands of fans at London Airport. The atmosphere in the first-class cabin was raucous, celebratory as the flight worked its way across the Atlantic. But as the Boeing 707 made that turn over Long Island for the final approach to the newly renamed John F. Kennedy Airport, things got quiet. The romance of the states had been with John since childhood. Brando, the beat poets, rock and roll. He'd long since fallen under their spell. But with America now only minutes away, it may have been too much for John to deal with. He took a deep breath, an uneasy look crossing his ruggedly handsome face and glanced around at the Beatles' entourage. Those two quotes are from The Beatles, the biography by Bob Spitz, published in 2012. There are many fine books out there about The Beatles. This is one of the best. Decades later, in The Beatles' anthology, George Harrison said The Beatles all knew they had a number one hit in America, but they were still unprepared didn't really know how big they already were here. That's probably spin. George is doing a little myth-making after the fact, making it sound like they were charmingly naive. We don't really buy it. From their earliest days together, the Beatles were fiercely ambitious, and over the last couple of years, they'd become very savvy indeed about the business of rock and roll. Where are we going, fellas? John would call out in the van, affecting the accent of an American radio announcer. To the top, Johnny. Came the chorused reply from the others. And I said, where's that, fellas? All together now. To the topmost of the poppermost. I said, right. Then we'd all sort of cheer up. By February of 1964, they understood the commercial demands of a music career, understood those demands, and embraced them. These guys were veterans, coming over to the States to get paid. They knew their craft, and they had poise and confidence to spare. But, spin or no spin, as that plane arrived, perhaps 23-year-old John Winston Lennon also arrived. Arrived at the sobering realization that this was all-new territory and that he and his mates were going to need every bit of their hard-earned poise and confidence. There were a lot of unknowns here. For starters, a British act coming to America and cleaning up? Preposterous. Didn't happen. In fact, it worked the other way around. British entertainment often just didn't click with American audiences. As George Bernard Shaw mordantly observed, the Brits and the Yanks are two peoples separated by a common language. 
Sure, the previous year the Beatles had busted out big. 1963 was the year of Beatlemania, a phrase coined by the British press. But that was in the UK. This was a much bigger stage. The biggest of them all. So we can excuse John his backstage butterflies. His moment of doubt. The stakes were high. And real uncertainty awaited that 707 as it taxied up to the jetway and came to a stop. The cabin door opened to bright winter sunlight. And a new era began. This podcast is intended to be education and commentary. It'll discuss adult themes and may use some coarse language. You want it, young man, and you've got it. The hottest man in the land. DIY and How Studios presents The Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music. Culture. Technology. And rock and roll. And now, on with the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast. Christian Swain here, and I'm behind the mic in San Francisco. Today, we begin a two-part episode on the origins of the Beatles. And these two shows will end up being part of an even longer story arc, because this is the opening wave of the British invasion. Settle in, folks, because this is a long story, and it is a great story. A short personal prologue. A few months back, I was lucky enough to spend a week in London. I did some remote recordings, stand-up narrations and interviews, and I did some hanging out with some great UK music fans. I had some fine moments just out and about on my own, too, prowling the streets of Soho, browsing in the British Museum and the British Library, strolling across that famous crosswalk in front of Abbey Road. You'll hear some of these bits in today's show and in later shows on the British Invasion. And we want to hear your thoughts, your comments. On occasion, we will even put up with your unhinged rants. Let us have it, all of it. You can contact the show through just about any social media platform. Just go to our website, rockandrollarchaeology.com and get the link. And our U.S. diggers can leave their own stories on the RNRAP hotline at 650-822-ROCK. One other thing, 
If you've been enjoying the show and wondered how you can help support the research, writing, production, the backstage writers for M&M's, Jack Daniels, Groupies, you, you might consider throwing us a few dollars of support. You can go to our website and either donate directly under Support the Project or click on one of the books in the show notes and purchase them yourself through the rockandrollarchaeology.com website. Okay, let's get to it right now. This is Episode 7, Meet the Beatles, Part 1. for us this evening to say hello to an up-and-coming Merseyside group, The Beatles. And I know their names, but I'm going to try and put faces to them. Now, you're John Lennon, aren't you? Yes, that's right. What do you do in the group, John? I play harmonica, rhythm, guitar, and vocal. Mm-hmm. That's what they call it. Harmonica, rhythm, guitar, and vocal. Then there's Paul McCartney, that's yeah, you. Me, yeah. And what do you do? Play bass, guitar, and uh, sing, <laughs> I think. Oh, you know, that's, that's what they quite say. Quite apart from being vocal. Yeah, well, yeah. 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 <laughs> then there's George Harrison. Mm, how do you do? How do you do? What, what's your job? Uh, lead guitar and sort of singing. Mm-hmm. By playing lead guitar, does that mean you're sort of leader of the group, or are no, you...? No, no, just... Well, you see, the other guitars, the rhythm. Yeah. Ting, ting, so ting, you, you It's solo yeah. guitar, you see. John and is, in fact, the leader of the group. Yeah. I don't know whether we caught that or not, but uh, I hope it went in. Yeah. And over in the background here, and also in the background of the group, but making a lot of noise, is Ringo Starr. Hello. You're new to the group, aren't you? Yes, um, nine weeks now. Mm-hmm. So off to London we go, uh, specifically to the West End neighborhood of Soho. Before we get into our main story, and what a story it is, I want to share a little of what I learned there and lay some important foundation for today's and future discussions. These days, Soho has been largely redeveloped and gentrified. I walked it quite a bit when I was in the UK, on my own and with Adam Scott, my excellent tour guide from London Walks Tours. It's a nice neighborhood now, a little funky, just enough of the old Soho sleaze to titillate the tourists. It's safe to walk at night. The drug dealers and working girls who plied their respective trades on Soho street corners have moved on to other neighborhoods. It's lively, lots of foot traffic at all hours. So throughout the 60s, and well beyond that, Soho was ground zero for London rock and roll, the place to catch a star on the ascent. Okay, hold that thought. Now let's head back, way back, to the earliest days of Soho. Right around 1660 CE, King Charles II was restored as the English monarch following the brief, turbulent reign of Oliver Cromwell. Over 350 years later, Cromwell remains a hotly controversial, polarizing figure in British history. The poet John Milton considered Cromwell a hero and a liberator. My tour guide, Adam, born and raised in Edinburgh, Scotland, looked down and spat on the ground every time his name was mentioned. More important to the story, Charles loved the theater, 
a real contrast with Cromwell, who was a puritanical fanatic with no regard for the arts. Well, more accurately, King Charles II loved actresses. Close enough. Adam Scott of London Walks picks up the story. Uh, And it's simple business. When businessmen see that the king has granted a new respectability to the theatre, a respectability that theatre didn't enjoy before, they build their theatres near the king's theatres and the West End grows up from the 1660s. Soho sits smack dab in the middle of the West End, Adam describes. And for centuries, until very recently... It was a low-rent, skeevy neighborhood. An artist's ghetto. The original artist's ghetto. The very name is synonymous with funky, sketchy arts districts all around the world. New York City, Hong Kong, Malaga, Spain, and Buenos Aires, Argentina all have their own Soho districts. Come on, pretty baby, let's move it and groove it. That song is Move It by Cliff Richard and the Shadows. It's the first homegrown British rock and roll hit. The Beatles, especially George, were not fans. They thought the Shadows were posers, a pale, weak imitation of American rock and roll. They vastly preferred the real thing. We are in solidarity with the Beatles on this one. Cliff Richards and the Shadows are mildly interesting from a historical perspective, and that's about it. Moving on, we return now to a couple of topics we touched on in Episode 1. First, unlike America, which was enjoying a sustained period of economic prosperity, post-war England was broke. Times were hard. Rationing of sugar, meat, heating oil, clothing, and... Lots of other common items went on for nearly a decade after the war's end. Flashy consumer products, things like cars and TVs, record players and radios, well, forget it. Those were for rich people. National conscription for young men, a military draft, was in place until 1958. That year's ending of compulsory national service is a huge factor in our story. Basically, this is flat out what makes possible the impending musical and cultural explosion. And finally, in episode one, we talked about a cultural response to hard times. The skiffle craze, a grassroots musical movement among working class Brits. Kids all over the country started groups using inexpensive banjos and guitars and improvised homemade instruments. Well, let's just have Adam Scott tell it. Adam and I chatted on this topic at the site of the Two Eyes Coffee Shop in Soho, which was quite the skiffle hotspot back in the day. Make some music, guitar, great, banjo, that'll do. Anything out the kitchen to make rhythm. Uh, Knock up some gin in a tin bath, send that round as well. Play some music, pass the hat round to pay for the whole thing. The rent party, skiffle music for poor folk, down home music. Um, It suited our culture perfectly. We so wanted to replicate American culture and those were the only tools we had because there was ration. So, Skiffle, it's important to us because John Lennon's first band was a Skiffle band in Liverpool, the Quarrymen. Jimmy Page was in a Skiffle band. He appears on television, I think he was 14 years old. I uh, found it and we use it in uh, episode one. Many a rock legend was a Skiffler as a lad, as Adam points out in his wonderful Scottish brogue. And yes, just to tie up a loose end, in episode one, we did play a brief clip featuring 14 
18-year-old Jimmy Page. Yes, that Jimmy Page who would go on to superstardom as a member of Led Zeppelin playing guitar in a skiffle band. We'll get there, but right now, it's 1958. Skiffle groups are everywhere in the UK. There's no more draft. The economy is finally starting to perk up. And most important to our story today, it's been a slow rolling thing, but American rock and roll has finally made it over here. I put a spell on you. Because of mine Stop the things you do Kids are turning into Radio Luxembourg and the American Armed Forces Network to hear the hits from across the Atlantic. American servicemen and British merchant sailors are bringing in records to the busy port of Liverpool. Buddy Holly toured the UK in early 58. One of those shows is broadcast nationally on BBC television. So even the stodgy government-run BBC is starting to come around. But for a couple of more years, it's still kind of an underground thing. It's not until 1960 or so that rock and roll really grabs the full attention of the UK. The scarcity of it is also the attraction. If you want to be a rocker in the UK, you got to want it. you got to work for it. It's worth the trouble. The music's great. This is the first golden age of rock and roll. New artists and influences busting out all over the place. Skivel music is still the big thing in England. It's fun and it's easy and it's brought out the musician and many a young Brit. But now Skiffle is getting pushed aside by, to use Adam Scott's colorful phrase. They had a jukebox playing God's Honest American Rock and Roll. God's Honest American Rock and Roll. Love that. Ray Charles and Elvis, Chuck Berry and Little Richard, Buddy Holly and the Everly Brothers. These American rock and rollers have most definitely seized the imaginations and fired up the ambitions of two young scousers. We'll come back to London and to Soho in particular, but that will happen on another day. Right now, at last, let's head north to Liverpool and check in on John Lennon and Paul McCartney before they was fab. It's a tough town, Liverpool. Always has been. Gritty, working class. Starting in 1940, things went from tough to damn near unbearable. The Scousers, that's colloquial slang for a Liverpool native, well, the Scousers just caught hell throughout the war. Liverpool was a prime target for German bombers, a crowded industrial port city with several important military bases nearby. Entire neighborhoods were flattened, thousands died, many more were injured and made homeless. A full decade later, Liverpool still bore the physical and emotional scars of war. The town was depressing, dirty and run down with more than its share of poverty and the social problems that go with it. School-age kids would run around and play in bombies, fenced off bomb sites that had yet to be rebuilt. 
they lived just about a mile apart. John stayed with his Aunt Mimi on Menlove Avenue in Woolton, a middle-class neighborhood. James Paul McCartney lived a bit to the west on Fourthland Road in the Allerton neighborhood. Both homes are now held by the National Trust as historic sites. The Allerton Golf Course separated the neighborhoods, physically and metaphorically. Moulton was on the nice side of town. The McCartney family lived in a decidedly blue-collar neighborhood consisting of council houses, modest row houses hastily thrown up after the war all over England. 20 Fourthland Road, where Jim and Mary McCartney moved with her young family in 1955, was a step up, relatively luxurious for a council house. It had an indoor flush toilet, and the two boys, Paul and Michael, had their own small bedrooms. I'd seen John around. I'd seen him on the bus. He was a bit of a Ted. We used to call them Ted's. Then Teddy boys. He had, uh, you know, a long draped jacket and he had side sideboards. So he was a bit, ooh, this kind of guy you'd look at. He's cool. Indeed, John was 20 months senior to Paul, and he was quite the local character. Dangerous, charming, and bitingly sarcastic. His father, Alfred Lennon, Alf was a ne'er-do-well merchant seaman, and he had been out of his life since John was five. His mother, Julia, was young, pretty, and free-spirited. She meant well and loved her boy fiercely, but Julia was not up to the responsibility of raising young John alone. Not long after Alf Lennon split, Julia's older sister, Mimi Smith, contacted the social services agency and took custody of John. Aunt Mimi and Uncle George were an older, childless couple, somewhat prim and stern, especially Mimi, rather a jarring change from the fun-loving Julia. But George had a cheerful side, and he was a solid provider who doted on John. Mimi was bright and well-read. Along with her sharp tongue and caustic wit, she passed on a love for music, literature, and art to her nephew. For the first time in his young life, John Lennon had structure, stability. He would stay with Aunt Mimi right up until 1962, when the Beatles moved to London. Uncle George died suddenly in June of 1955. He was the father figure in John's life, and John took the loss hard. Around that same time, John started rekindling his relationship with Julia, and mother and son grew close over the next few years. George had left Mimi and John with a modest pension and Mendips, the small house with the big garden on Menlove Avenue. Mimi rented out rooms to students from nearby Liverpool University. It was far from posh, but they got by all right. Better than most folks in Liverpool in those years. Saturday night, a hold a I can hold a tight, but she lives on the 20th of town. 
They met in July of 1957 at an outdoor gig for the Quarrymen, John Skiffle Band. A mutual friend introduced them after the show. Paul busted out his guitar and played Eddie Cochran's 20 Flight Rock. Paul's rendition was sharp and true, and he remembered all the words, something that gave John difficulty. John played it cool, but inside he was very impressed. For good reason. Paul was a natural musician going back to his early childhood when he learned piano from his dad. Learn piano, son. Jim McCartney advised his older son. You'll always be invited to parties. Jim Mack got young Paul a trumpet for his birthday. A couple months later, Paul swapped it for a guitar. He practiced obsessively, and by 15, he was a strong guitarist and singer. He had a knack for singing harmony, and Paul could do a dead-on imitation of Little Richard's frantic gospel rock tenor, which just absolutely floored John Lennon. John was not thrilled to share the spotlight, but he was smart enough and ambitious enough to know that Paul's chops and charisma could take the quarrymen from skiffle group to rock and roll band. So right here, let's step back, look at the larger picture for a bit. We'll come back to Liverpool shortly. Every once in a while, life conjures up a genuine ultimate. It can be said without fear of hyperbole, this is what the Beatles were and are, and 50 plus years after they leapt into view, 50, there's little hint it's going to change. That's Mark Lewison introducing his 2013 book, Tune In, The Beatles, All These Years. Tune In is the first volume of a planned trilogy. Lewison's book, Bob Spitz's biography, and the Beatles anthology serve as our primary sources when it comes to the early years of the Beatles. As we prepared this show, two things kept coming up. First, just being humbled by the enormity of the subject, we will not even try to tell the whole Beatles saga. We only hope to present a few key stories that will convey the feel and feedback. As to the second thing, well, here's Mark Lewison again. The Beatles were free of artifice and weren't the product of market research or focus groups or TV talent shows. They were original and developed organically when everyone was looking the other way. Which raises the question, how was it that Lennon and McCartney just happened? How did they develop organically when nobody was looking? The circumstances of their first meeting are completely ordinary, a mutual friend introduces them, two blokes from the same town who share a fanatical interest in rock and roll. Both are smart, talented, driven. They hit it off right away. Fine, but lots of folks are smart, talented, and driven. There was more. There was instant synergy with these two. Right away, the whole was greater than the sum of its parts. Lennon and McCartney. It's become a metaphor a signifier that everyone immediately understands. It means uniquely successful creative partnership. Lots of people have tried to explain this, and just about all of them are right. It's a bunch of things. The alchemy that was Lennon and McCartney can only be explained by an incredible. And incredible is the right word. It does strain credibility 
just this incredible convergence of forces and events. There are many layers to it. So let's go back to Liverpool, late 50s. Maybe we can dig something up, expose a few of those layers. This is the BBC Home Service. But please don't take it too hard. Half seconds, it. I thirds it. Motion carry. Huzzah, we're in! This means yet another extraordinary talking type wireless corn show! <laughs> They don't write tunes like that anymore. From 1951 through 1960, BBC Radio ran The Goon Show, a quirky half-hour of absurdist humor featuring Spike Milligan. The show was a national hit, and the lads from Liverpool just ate it up. They would run through sketches with each other, recalling them word for word. They also loved the crazy sound effects. Lagoon Show was a real pioneer in this area of broadcasting. <laughs> Fans of Money Python already have a feel for what the Goon Show was like. The Pythons were very much inspired and influenced by the Goons. Sadly, the first few seasons of the Goon Show were lost forever. So far as anyone seems to know, the BBC destroyed the archival recordings but we have linked to some of the later episodes in the show notes. A few minutes of listening and you'll understand where they got their puns and wordplay, their quick-witted repartee. That cheekiness and charm would serve the Beatles very well indeed as they climb from scouts or skifflers to the toppermost of the poppermost. Sweetly nostalgic tune is Come Dancing, a 1982 hit by the Kinks, and it recalls the music hall style, which was also big in England back in the 50s. It has a lot in common with the vaudeville tradition in America, a fun, fast-paced, something-for-everybody kind of show. A dance orchestra, acrobats and magicians, comedy acts, all kinds of stuff. For working-class families in hard-scrabble provincial towns like Liverpool, this was where you took the kids on a Saturday night. Resorts or holiday camps would also feature music hall entertainment. The 50s and early 60s were the declining days of the tradition, but music hall lives on. It's one of the defining, distinctive things about British rock over the years. The Brits just love their showbiz. It's not 100% true. There's a lot of crossover, but to this day, American rockers are all about the grit and the authenticity, while our British friends just love to bring the razzle-dazzle put on the show. And we see this duality, this tension in the Lennon-McCartney partnership. Now, Paul could rock it with the best of them, and John had his poetic and thoughtful side, but by and large, it was true. John was the Ted, the authentic tough guy rocker, and Paul was the cute one, a showman, and a crowd pleaser. Well, be bop she's my baby. Be bop I don't mean my baby. Be bop she's my baby. Be bop I don't mean my baby. Be bop she's my 
And there was something dark that connected these two. Something rarely talked about, but deeply felt. Both of these boys had known tragedy at a young age. And that was a powerful emotional bond between them. In October of 1956, about a months before John and Paul met, Mary McCartney died from a malignant tumor in her breast that had rapidly metastasized. Six months after the initial diagnosis, she was gone. A hard-working nurse and midwife, Mary had soldiered on throughout her illness. Paul and Michael McCartney did not learn how serious it really was until mere hours before their mom passed. John also had a big hole in his world. He was abandoned by his biological father at five years of age, and at 15 he lost the man who had actually been his father, George Smith. In their respective books, Spitz and Lewison clearly document this shared bond of shared loss through interviews with friends and family members. John and Paul would crack wise about it, share dark, morbid jokes, but only with each other. Anyone else who brought it up was asking for trouble. And before long, a third loss, this one sudden and devastating, would hit John Lennon. On July 15, 1958, Julia Lennon was struck and killed by a car as she walked to the bus stop after visiting with John and Mimi Admendips. John and Julia had developed a bond over the last few years that was joyous and close, but also fraught with complexity, mixed emotions, and a lot of unfinished business. The fine, understated 2009 film Nowhere Boy nicely conveys those years and the relationship between Julia Lennon and her son. We think so anyway. The film takes dramatic license. Things are condensed and combined to move the story along. But the emotional tone of Nowhere Boy feels right, and it's congruent with the more rigorous accounts we are using as sources. We recommend it. So before he reaches his 18th birthday, John Lennon has been abandoned by his father, and his beloved uncle and mother have been suddenly and tragically taken away from him. Aunt Mimi was stoic and steady. She would always be there for John. But with Julia gone, there was now just one person in the world who really got him, who understood him. His musical compatriot, that left-handed bloke from Allerton, young Paul McCartney. There's one more piece, one more catalyst we'd like to discuss. It came in the form of a person, an unlikely bloke, just a nipper really, who went behind the ears barely 15 years of age when Paul brought him round to meet John in the early spring of 1958. George Harold Harrison was nine months younger than Paul, a year behind him at the Liverpool Institute High School for Boys. The baby brother youngest of four kids born to Harry and Louise Harrison. As a grade schooler, he'd done well on his 11-plus exams, well enough to gain admittance to the Institute, the best high school in town. His mom hoped young George might become the first Harrison to attend college. 
But any academic hopes were quickly dashed. George was an indifferent student, a bit of a troublemaker, too. He managed not to get himself expelled, but that was about it. Starting at age 12, young George Harrison applied himself to one thing only, playing guitar. Paul was a quick study who practiced hard, but George put him to shame. Guitar took over his life. Family and friends all tell stories of George's fanatic determination to master it. By the time George hit 15, he was the best guitarist in the whole school. Paul took him under his wing during the 57-58 school year, and in early 1958, he arrived at a decision. He would convince John Lennon to make George Harrison the newest member of the Quarrymen. anthology, they tell the legend. Paul contrives an audition on the upper deck of a Liverpool bus. George busts out his guitar and plays the Bill Justice instrumental, Raunchy, and wins John over. The real story? The bus audition was the second, or possibly even the third try. John liked George, and really liked his guitar playing. But he was just a kid, in John's reckoning. John was already well into his 17th year. George was barely 15. That wasn't an age gap. That was an age chasm. John had already taken in one youngster. Now another one? In time, he relented, but it took a few months before the three of them settled in together as quarrymen. Fall of 1958, John started at the Liverpool College of Art which shared a building with the Liverpool Institute High School, where Paul and George went to school. Well, when they actually went, which was not a whole lot. Throughout the 58-59 school year, baby-faced Paul and his protege, George, who looked even younger, would sag off class and meet with John next door at the art college. The three of them would bust out guitars and play for the lunch crowd or retreat to an unused room to work out things alone. school, they would continue in the front room in the McCartney house, or take advantage of the slapback echo on Aunt Mimi's front porch. John and Paul began working eyeball to eyeball, composing songs together. John was too vain to wear his glasses, which made the close quarters necessary. Paul was a lefty, so they provided each other with a neat mirror image as they sussed out new guitar chords and worked out songs. Another Lennon-McCartney original was hand-printed in bold capitals across the top of each new song. It was deep collaboration, and it was intensely competitive right from the start. And when it got a little too intense, George was there as a safety valve, as a loyal mascot to them both. He was a quiet guy, intent on his guitar playing, but he could also flash a droll wit and a fine sense of comic timing, something that John especially enjoyed. 
and George had the guitar chops to sweeten up and fill out the simple compositions the two older boys were coming up with. He was the glue, musically and socially. So by the middle of 1958, the basic dynamic was in place. John Lennon and Paul McCartney had formed a songwriting team of rivals, and they had George Harrison, the baddest young guitar slinger in Liverpool, as their mutual sidekick. We'll take a little dramatic license ourselves and skim over some of the events of the next few years. These were eventful, important times for John, Paul, and George, but they weren't the Beatles. Not quite. Not yet. The time they spent playing in Hamburg was critical to their later success, and we can't pass that up without comment. Even if, thanks to the author Malcolm Gladwell in his 2008 book Outliers, it's become kind of a tired cliché. Yes, they got a lot of experience in a very short period of time, grinding it out five shows a day, every day. The three boys along with Stuart Sutcliffe on bass and Pete Best on the drums, put in the proverbial 10,000 hours honing their craft. So, as far as that goes, Gladwell is absolutely right. You gotta pay your dues. Blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. But we want to back up a little and reject his entire premise. The Beatles are not an example of an outlier. They are not unusual. They are the ultimate, a singular phenomenon. The Beatles don't present us with a repeatable formula for success you can put in a book for people to buy at the airport. And what's more, we balk at the suggestion that 10,000 hours sufficiently explains anything. It's simplistic. There's always more going on than that. Now, it's almost painfully obvious, but we'll point it out anyway. Beat Best and Stuart Sutcliffe were there, too, putting in their own 10,000 hours. Somehow the magic 10,000 failed to lift these two out of mediocrity. Anyway, so much for Malcolm Gladwell and his Beatles 10,000 hours cliché. By the way, we do like a lot of his other ideas. We just kind of roll our eyes at that one. So here's something cool, something fun. Hamburg was a sleazy, sexy, super badass place to be for three cool cats in a rock and roll band. We're talking kids in a candy store here. Here's a quote from Bob Spitz that will set the tone. The place looked just right to the Beatles, who could hardly believe their eyes. It was all out there in front of them. Girls prowling the streets, sitting provocatively, leaning just so, and music was blaring from every open doorway. That first trip to Hamburg, the Beatles, 
August of 1960 was also when they finally settled in on that name, were to open at the Kaiser Keller Club for another Liverpool outfit, Rory Storm the Hurricanes. The boys didn't think much of the Hurricanes. Crummy was how George described them in a letter back home to his mates. But they did like the Hurricanes drummer, a sad-eyed young man who wore lots of rings and had a gray streak in his hair. That bloke could play. They ended up playing most of their shows in a scuzzy joint called the Indra of the main drag. It was cold, dingy, smelly. The pay was bad and the accommodations worse. But they were doing it. They were working musicians. And when they got back to Liverpool late in 1960, they were cocky, worldly, and decked out in black leather. And when they took the stage at the Cavern and those other little clubs back home, well, they played with a ferocity that verged on anarchy. The locals were blown away. After sorting out some passport issues, they went back for more in early 61. The second tour of Hamburg was when things started to pop. They got into a better club, the Top Ten, backing up a singer-guitarist named Tony Sheridan. Tony could play a mean guitar, better than George, better than any of them. And he was a tireless, fearless performer who left it all out on the stage every night. The guys loved backing him. For his part, Tony would often bark at Pete and Stewart, but he really enjoyed the strong playing and sharp backing vocals from the other three. Right away, the boys fought fatigue. Sheridan was a hyperactive madman who pushed them hard. The workday was about 12 hours long, late afternoons until well into the wee hours. And there was plenty to do after work. Unlike the girls back in Liverpool, the young women who prowled the Reaper Bond were not interested in playing hard to get. Before long, the guys started popping an amphetamine cocktail called Preludin, or Prellies, washed out with lots of beer. Tony had a big sack of them, and he handed them out generously. Except for Pete Best, all the guys used them to get up and stay up. John and George especially loved the Prellies. Stewart would drift away from the band after that second tour. In the spring of 61, he decided to stay behind in Hamburg with his girlfriend and get himself back into art school. And I love you so. Love me. It was the right move. Stuart Sutcliffe was a gifted painter with real promise. But as a musician, he was unfortunately a hack. He'd been holding the band back. All the guys knew it. Stuart knew it himself. But John just wouldn't sack his friend. In their days together at the art college, John had looked up to Stuart. Still did, even as he was getting more and more frustrated with his ham-handed bass playing. Paul was much clearer about it. From the very beginning, he was jealous of John and Stu's friendship. He felt slighted and pushed aside from his rightful spot. He often berated Stuart for his weak musicianship and would go way beyond that sometimes. In Hamburg, Paul McCartney escalated, started being pretty much a complete bastard to Stu Sutcliffe, and John did nothing to stop the bullying. Things came to a head in early June on stage at the Top Ten Club, 
near the end of the second Hamburg tour. It started when Paul made a nasty wisecrack about Stuart's girlfriend. Now, Stu Sutcliffe was a sensitive, soft-spoken guy, an art nerd. He was all of five foot seven, maybe 140 pounds soaking wet. For months, he had quietly endured Paul's slights and insults. Not anymore. He dropped his bass, charged across the stage, and knocked Paul McCartney on his ass. Tussling and punching, they rolled together onto the floor right in front of the stage. Tony Sheridan stopped and watched in amusement. Tony was no stranger to fisticuffs. Meanwhile, the other guys just kept on playing. It's not clear who broke it up. They were closest, so it's likely that John and George simply hopped off the stage at the end of the song and pulled them off each other. A few days later, Stuart told John he was quitting and loaned his bass to Paul. A pretty generous gesture, all things considered. The Beatles were now a four-piece. Paul bought his own bass later that month, the famous left-handed Hoffner. It was a special order, but it only took a few days. The factory was right there in Germany. A few weeks earlier, John had visited a Hamburg music shop and picked up his Rickenbacker 325, an American guitar. Not long after they got back to Liverpool... George bought his own American guitar, a Gretsch Duo Diamond, off of a merchant sailor. So by the summer of 1961, they had acquired their signature instruments, Paul's Hoffner Beetle Bass, John's Jingly Rickenbacker, and George's Fat Twangy Gretsch. A sad footnote to this chapter. Less than a year after he left the band, founding Beetle Stuart Sutcliffe, died of a brain aneurysm in Hamburg in April of 1962. The boys were actually on their way to Hamburg for their third time when it happened. Time and success had mellowed the old resentments, and all of them were looking forward to seeing each other again. They didn't find out Stu had died until they got into town. They all took it hard. John was absolutely crushed. started drumming with them back in the fall of 1960. They had hurriedly picked him up the week before they left on that first trip to Hamburg. He had his own kit and a passport. Good enough. Pete was a bit more capable as a musician than his first partner on the back line, Stuart Sutcliffe, but that's not saying a whole lot. When Paul McCartney moved over to bass in 1961, Pete's musical weaknesses were thoroughly exposed. The guy was a bricklayer back there. The Beatles had cut a record before leaving Hamburg on June 22, 1961. 
They backed up Tony Sheridan on his rocked-up remake of My Bonnie. That song by Tony Sheridan and the Beat Brothers is the first professionally done recording of John, Paul, and George. But you don't hear much of Pete Best. At the recording sessions with Sheridan, the producer stripped Pete's kit down to the bass drum, the snare, and one cymbal. Even with this simple kit, he struggled to keep good time. The other Beatles had moved way beyond him. But clunky drummer and all, they were still moving up and fast. The final time through Hamburg, they headlined the biggest club in town, the Star Club, for two months on their own as the Beatles. Liverpool rocked Hamburg that spring. A bunch of acts from the pool came through those two months. They all did well, but the Beatles smoked every last one of them. It was a triumph, and they came back to Liverpool as conquering heroes. So by the summer of 1962, John, Paul, and George had already put in four hard years of apprenticeship together. It was no longer an adolescent dream. The Beatles were pros, working musicians. Over the past year, they had set fire to the music scene of two cities, Liverpool and Hamburg. They were booked solid for months. They had their own driver and a big fan club. They even kind of sort of had a record out. It also taken on a new manager, and he had big plans for them. They stood on the brink. There was one last piece, one last step to take. To get that record deal, the Beatles needed to upgrade their drummer. And they already had someone in mind. very next episode we are going to meet Richie Starkey from Liverpool and a couple of other very interesting chaps. I'm Christian Swain and this is the Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast. Cheers everybody and do stop by again for episode 8. the wrongs of social injustice? Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help.
The Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast is produced and hosted by Christian Swain. Written by Richard Evans and Christian Swain. Sound by John Michael Berry. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.